the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Tuesday night edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, let's reset the table on all things Hunter Biden. Hunter and Joe Biden. That's because this is what President Trump is going to need to do on Thursday. Bridge from Hunter to the big guy. And uh, this goes to, uh, in part, the uh, conversation I had with former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani yesterday. I want to play an excerpt or two from that to uh, reestablish where we are. But first, John Radcliffe, DNI, he was on with Maria Bartiromo yesterday. And to the assertions made by Adam Schiff and others that this is Russian misinformation, the uh, New York Post story about the actual Hunter Biden laptop believed to be and the alleged emails outlining alleged foreign business dealings, that this is a fabrication meant to distract from the election. This is the Russians at it again. Well, that's news to the director of national intelligence, who knows very little about this and um, otherwise would if this was national intelligence related. And we have shared no intelligence with Chairman Schiff or any other member of Congress that Hunter Biden's laptop is part of some Russian disinformation campaign. It's simply not true. And... This is exactly what I said I would stop when I became the director of national intelligence, and that's people using the intelligence community to leverage some political narrative. And in this case, apparently Chairman Schiff wants anything against his preferred political candidate to be deemed as not real and is using the intelligence community or attempting to use the intelligence community to say there's nothing to see here. Um, Don't drag the intelligence community into this. Hunter Biden's laptop is not part of some Russian disinformation campaign. And I think it's clear that the American people know that. And this is where we picked it up with Rudy Giuliani. Okay, so this is a matter for the FBI. The report is the FBI, New York Post reporting, that had Hunter Biden's laptop since uh, November of last year. So what have they done? Are they doing? Why is whatever they are or are not doing taking so long? I have no idea what Christopher Ray is doing. Maybe he's stupid. I don't know. If your FBI gets a hard drive like this and the U.S. Attorney's Office in just what I grew up in, you have to investigate. I don't care who it is. It could be Donald Trump or it could be Joe Biden or it could be Cardinal somebody or whatever it is. They all get investigated. And here's what Rudy Giuliani is alleging. Uh, again, back to the, the matter of not making this about Hunter Biden, but really making this about the big guy. I'm talking about major bribery. Really? I'm talking about millions of dollars from China. I'm talking about Joe getting a cut of that and Hunter admitting it. The big guy, that's what you're referencing? Yeah, well, the big guy, the big guy, there are, there are now witnesses to prove who the big guy is. You'd have to be an idiot not to figure out who the big guy is. Only the demented American crooked media misses the fact that the big guy is Joe Biden. You think yeah. China kept paying money to the Bidens for five years and wasn't getting any value for it? Mm-hmm. You think the Chinese are stupid? You think they're paying for a guy who can't stay away from crack for more than two days? Or are they paying to buy a vice president? Interesting rhetorical question. Uh, Giuliani, though, doesn't have a particularly good answer for 
why it is the Trump administration can't seem to hold anybody accountable for what we know to be true about their behavior. I'm talking about from the Russian collusion investigations pre-election as well as post-election and everything associated with the operation of the senior leadership at FBI, at CIA, the previous administration. Where is the reckoning? This is the frustration that uh, my colleague Hugh Hewitt expressed with Ron Johnson, senator from Wisconsin, uh, several weeks back. And it persists. And it's the same thing with Ray or Haspel. The reports about Gina Haspel, the current CIA director, stonewalling the production of documents uh, that uh, Senate oversight committees are legitimately entitled to, just as Ray has done. And then what's the answer here with Ray and uh, this apparent Hunter Biden computer? I I don't have a good answer for you other than the deep state is a lot deeper than I thought. Mm. And I also think it's the intimidation of the media. I think there are a lot of people in government who realize if we do something favorable to the Democrats, the Washington Post, the New York Times, ABC, CBS, NBC treats us like heroes. And if we do something uh, uh, contrary to them, they're treated like uh, criminals, like I am. I mean, the stuff they say about me is totally ridiculous. I'm a Russian agent. I'm a, I'm a criminal. I mean, the FBI, I think they investigated me. I'm not sure. I mean, they can investigate me all they want. I don't commit crimes. But what I mean, they intimidate you. I've had people threaten me. I've had people that work with me lose their jobs because of this. They intimidate people. So you, you, the, the, a lot of the prosecutors aren't heroes. They're just ordinary people. And they know I go after Joe Biden. I might as well never go to a law firm. For more on Hunter Biden and the big guy, we're pleased to be joined by David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. I know uh, Rudy is a bit of a live wire, to say the least, but um, does he not have a point here about uh, the money flowing through Hunter Biden, the emails that suggest Hunter was trying to cut in the big guy, which Fox News is saying through its sources is Joe Biden. That's who's being referenced. And, um, you know, sort of uh, similarly exasperated as I am, and I think many others are, with the inability to get any accountability from people in positions of authority like the FBI director. Well, yes. I mean, but my main focus here is that the people who are supposed to hold all of the powerful accountable is the media. And they have decided to become censors on this story. They've, They've come up with this mythical idea that everything is Russian collusion that they don't like or anything that makes Biden look bad. I mean, there's a story here. I don't know how deep it goes or what it's about exactly, but obviously these emails are not fabricated. They're real. And they were attained in the way well within the bounds of normal journalistic ethics, and they should be investigated. It's incredible to me that as they try to censor this story, at the same time, they try to smear the people who wrote it. I've read like three yes. process stories about the new post newsroom, but not one in the main media about how Biden pressured the Ukrainians to fire a prosecutor who was investigating the company his son was making money off of. I mean, it's just incredible. Well, the New York Times uh, has uh, the drop on uh, all the New York Post staff involved with these stories, but they can't seem to get an answer from Hunter Biden. I wonder if they've tried. They can send people to investigate Amy Coney Barrett's adoption process, Mm. but they can't send a single person to ask Hunter Biden if these emails are real. I mean, we know they're real because if they weren't real, we would have heard about it already. And frankly, we don't need to know if they're all real because I don't really care about what Hunter, I mean, I care to some extent, but I don't think it's super important that Hunter Biden is an addict, etc. What matters is are the emails where he says that he's cutting in the front run, front run of the presidential election on Chinese money 
real because there's no way Hunter Biden made that money because he's a smart guy or he has some kind of insight into the energy business or whatever. Exactly. And, and again, this from the same outlets and the same party that was very concerned about uh, President Trump being compromised by America's enemies. And now we're talking about Chinese communist money from Chinese energy companies that uh, may find its way back to Joe Biden. And, and frankly, Rudy Giuliani suggests there's a lot more of that contained in those email exchanges. And also the New York, I just want to quickly say the New York Post has been far, far more transparent on its sourcing for this story than any, any of the Russia collusion hysteria mm. stories. And many other stories turned out to be untrue. And we still don't know. There was, for instance, the Don Jr. story where it's a long, complicated thing, but he had had these email, this email that supposedly gave him a heads up on the hacking of DNC emails, which turned out to be false. We still don't know. CNN has still not explained how we could have gotten the same date wrong from a multiple number of sources. So, I mean, at least the Post is transparent that political players are involved. It doesn't make the the information false. The, the other thing, too, now this is on the Trump administration. I, I want this question asked. So is anybody going to go talk to Christopher Ray and say, uh, what's the story here? I mean, there, there needs to be some accounting for what the FBI is or is not doing and why. Uh, listen, I, I don't think I think most of the people are institutionalists in the FBI and in, within the government, within the executive branch overall. And I just I think they they want to protect those institutions from criticism. And they don't they just are not. You know, I mean, Trump could have been releasing the, the administration could have been releasing this kind of information about the whole Russia collusion thing, et cetera, a long time ago. And they never did. I I have no answer for, for why they don't do it, but I just assume that the people who work there still want to protect those institutions, and they're not interested, as Rudy said on your show, in, in uh, exposing themselves to the kind of criticism and you know future job prospects or lack of future job prospects that comes with that kind of positioning. Yeah, and I and I, I this does at minimum then provide an opportunity for Trump to say essentially what Rudy Giuliani said, which is the the deep state is deeper than I thought. For Trump to say on Thursday night, the swamp is deeper than I thought. And look, you can either uh, go with me to try to continue to drain it or you can refill it with, uh, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I mean, that seems to me a fairly straightforward choice to present, at least. Yeah, I mean, you could say that. I, I you know, I, I, use, I, I don't like saying the deep state because it sounds conspiratorial. Yeah. But every day, yeah. every day I move closer and closer to saying, why not? There is a deep state. I, 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 yeah, exactly. Maybe come up with a new term. But I mean, you're, <laughs> you, we're, we're describing something that's actually happening. Uh, When we come back with David Harsani, I also want to get uh, his take on a couple of other matters, including uh, the purge coming for Shelby Steele, as well as uh, Donald Trump's uh, response to what Tony Fauci had to say on 60 Minutes and whether the president is making the main thing the main thing here in the closing days by going after Fauci. More with David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, right after this. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And uh, President Trump, uh, in a campaign call, uh, reacted to what Tony Fauci had to say on 60 Minutes yesterday. Uh, saying these things. People are tired of hearing 
Fauci and all these idiots, these, these people, these people that have gotten it wrong, Fauci's a nice guy, he's been here for 500 years, he called every one of them wrong, and he's like this wonderful guy, a wonderful sage selling us out. He said, do not wear a face mask, that's a number of months ago. He said, do not close it up with China. Don't, I, I have a list of 50 things this guy, and yet we keep him. Every time he goes on television, there's always a bomb, but there's a bigger bomb if you fire him. But Josh is a disaster. I mean, this guy, if I listen to him, we have 500,000 deaths. And let me tell you one other thing. We take 2.2 million people. If we didn't do what we did and close it and do it just right now, we're open again. But we never close it again. It would never close. It'll never close again. Because we know the disease. But Fauci, if we listen to him, we have 700, 800,000 deaths right now. So, with that, I get along with him. If there's a reporter on, you can have it just away, so I couldn't care less. Uh, for reaction to that, uh, pleased to be joined again by David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, is uh, that why President Trump, and uh, this an example of why President Trump is in such a hotly contested re-election fight? Is it, is it because he's attacking Fauci? Yeah. Uh, spending his time spending his time reacting to Fauci's 60 Minutes interview at two weeks before an election. Yeah, I mean, I... I don't know. I don't know why he's doing that. I don't think it's it's important, though. You know, I, I don't. This is just my personal view, and I, I don't like this sainthood of Fauci or the way that he's treated by the media when when it's you know convenient for them most of the time. But um, I don't really see the upside of that kind of uh, attack uh, right now. I assume Fauci's pretty popular in general. I guess if I were to try to defend it, I would say that people are kind of sick of. Uh, being locked up and being, being, you know, and having their economy destroyed and and, and being told different things as they move along and having goalposts move, for instance, you know, initially trying to uh, uh, bend the curve or flatten the curve. And then now, you know, if a thing, you know, if anyone has it, we can't leave the house and the school's being closed down. So maybe there's something there. I don't, I don't know. I'm not, you know, not an expert on that sort of thing. Well, I mean, I, I agree with what you said, but it seems to me that's what Trump should say rather than making this about Tony Fauci, who is canonized by the media. But that is in part uh, the fault of President Trump for elevating him and featuring him at coronavirus task force briefings for weeks on end. So, I mean, he has to accept some responsibility for the personnel choices that he made. And it just seems to me the closing day should be exactly that is, you know, Tony Fauci said what he said. I respect Tony Fauci. I respect his opinion. Let me tell you what we've done. Let me tell you what we're planning to do and, and how this is going to shake out. And rather than making this personal with Fauci, make it about the American people and their frustrations with lockdown policies, their frustrations that the kids aren't in school full time and so on and so forth, you know, align yourself. And and it's funny to me because it comes right after this weekend where at least at one of his rallies in Fort Myers, he said, uh, yeah, you know, suburban women, you may not like me, but you like what I'm doing, referring to support for law and order and, and police and so forth. Well, right. So if you recognize that your personality rubs people the wrong way, then focus on what you're doing, not your personality. So that would take a kind of messaging discipline. I don't think he has. Yeah. Has never had. And um, and the thing is, I think he takes everything personally. If you're against Trump or you say something that he, you know, against Trump on 60 Minutes, there's almost zero chance he's not going to respond and lash out at you. That's just how it is. And that's how he's always been. 
but I am somewhat skeptical that this will hurt, really. I don't think it helps, but I think that people, it's, I hate to use these cliches, but it's baked into the cake how yeah. he is yeah. with people who, who are critical of him. Well, then what, what uh, is, if you're, uh, you know, advising and, and uh, not that anybody, not that Trump would listen to you any more than he would me or anybody else, but uh, on Thursday night, what is it that Trump should be trying to accomplish for uh, those who have trepidations maybe about both candidates and are, are, are standing at the abyss uh, trying to decide which step, uh, you know, which, uh, which uh, candidate moves them forward over and which candidate moves them one step back from it? Well, if I, if I were Trump, I would use my time, and now obviously they're going to be muting the candidates so you can't interrupt each other, which I, I find distasteful, not yeah. to interrupt in the muting. But you can, um, I think this is a good chance for him to basically ignore the moderator, ask his own questions, and make his own points about, uh, you know, how well his economy had, economy had been and how well it can be, you know, how well it can do again, and that, and talk about, um, and dispel many of the, the myths and the lies that, that the Biden campaign and the media continually push, for instance, that he has never, uh, you know, he has never, um, uh, what's the word? He has never under, you know, he has never dispelled, an, he should dispel the notion that he is pro-white supremacist. He should dispel the notion that uh, he didn't act quickly on coronavirus. He should dispel the notion that he, you know, he hasn't been tough on Russia, or that Biden would be tougher on Russia. And he should ask Biden about this, about this Hunter stuff as well, and just ignore what the moderator does. I mean, I, I heard they took off the foreign policy section of questions, and it's just an it's just ridiculous. So I don't know. That, so I would just tell him to ignore the moderator, which I, I don't know if that's uh, would be good advice or not. Uh, Never with, won an election. Uh, just going back to, to the media, and you, and you can't talk about the media without talking about big tech, uh, Justice Department filing an antitrust lawsuit this morning alleging Google engaged in anti-competitive conduct to preserve monopolies in search and search advertising, joined by uh, 11 states in this uh, this lawsuit against Google. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of talk uh, pre-COVID about uh, big tech and its ability to influence the election and its desire to influence the election, you to use its power to do that. And I wonder if uh, you think Republicans uh, here were uh, dithering too long in trying to address some of what we've seen play out uh, just in the last week, as you wrote about with Twitter and, and Facebook and The New York Post. Well, I'm in a weird position because I don't, I, I am not for, for the kind of things that Josh Howley and others want to do with big tech. I don't want to remove liability protections, um, but I, I don't have a good answer for how, how to fix the problem. I think that when you empower the government to control what goes on in big tech, it's going to be utilized in the end by the left because they are, are, are far more likely to to expand and, and use, you know and have mission creep etc as far as the state goes so I, I don't know uh, what can be done I think that the the Twitter censoring of this post story only made it far more a far bigger story and uh, I think that it that kind of backfired so I don't know you know Twitter and de- democratized media in general allow allow Americans to bypass gatekeepers so to make it so to shrink that democratize media and media and have more gatekeepers and have the state involved in being those gatekeepers, I think is a bad idea for, for freedom, but also for conservatives. Practically. Do, you, do you think we could at least agree that uh, Jeffrey Tubin is banned from zoom calls for life? <laughs> 
Yeah, usually I would not comment on something like that, but I think he deserves to be commented on because of his past actions. Indeed. Uh, David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, switching gears to have a discussion about COVID, but a uh, particularly focused one on young children. We've spoken a lot about uh, the intellectual development being stunted with schools closed or uh, singularly using uh, remote learning as the means by which to try to educate children. We've talked about um, kids being locked in homes or not allowed to play sports, not allowed in public spaces, feeling confined, which raises anxiety the survey research on the increase in suicidal thinking, as well as the increase in actual suicides, the deaths of despair, drug use, even at young ages. I wanted to get a, a handle on now that we're, you know, a good uh, seven months into these lockdown whack-a-mole policies, get a sense of, from a practitioner's point of view, of what he sees with uh younger kids in terms of how our culture is handling this COVID-19 pandemic. To do so, we've invited Dr. Leonard Sachs to the show. He is an American psychologist and practicing family physician. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of books, including The Collapse of Parenting and most recently, Girls on the Edge, Why So Many Girls Are Anxious, Wired and Obsessed, and What Parents Can Do. Dr. Sachs, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. So what, what is your uh, general perspective on what you see happening to, say, grade school age kids uh, in the uh, era of uh, COVID-19 and the associated lockdown policies? Well, I can tell you, I can uh, tell within two minutes of this kid coming into my office uh, what the home situation is, and it's much more dramatic. Uh, that wasn't true a year ago or five years ago. It is certainly true now during this pandemic era. Uh, parents have taken two different approaches when a lockdown is imposed. One approach, the approach that is encouraged, for example, by uh, all the experts in the New York Times, is to let kids do what they want to do. Uh, as uh, Lisa Damore, the their, uh, adolescence expert, uh, said, if, if video games give you joy, then, then play video games. Uh, and uh, so we have parents who are letting their grade school age kids sit in rooms with uh, a device playing video games or on YouTube for hours on end. Those kids are sullen, withdrawn, uh, and much more likely to be anxious or depressed. Other parents have taken a different tack, which is to take advantage of the lockdown, to view the lock- lockdown as an opportunity 
to create stronger bonds within the family, whether that's board games or hikes or uh, crafts or uh, building something in the backyard. And those kids are happy. They are making good eye contact. Uh, They are articulate. They're thriving. And it's really not that much of a surprise because we have 50 years of research showing that the parent-child connection is the most important connection in a child's life. That has to be prioritized. One of the points I make in, in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, is that many American parents have lost sight of that fact, and they now prioritize kids' relationships with same-age peers. And parents are like, oh my gosh, we got a lockdown, and my kid can't hang out with his friends, so I guess I should let them be on social media and, and, and on their phones for hours because otherwise they'll just wither away. Uh, that's very common among American parents, and it's utterly deranged. The most important connection in a child's life is the connection with the parent, way more important than connections with other kids. Take advantage of the lockdown to strengthen the connection with your child. And, uh, you know, the issue of screen time was an issue we were discussing and, and um, you know, as a society prior to the pandemic, the uh, kids spending too much time in front of screens, too much time on social media, which is sort of a, a secondary layer of the screen time problem because of the particular problems associated with the uh, addictive nature of social media, in addition to the sort of content and what it does to a young person's psyche. I want to pick it up there when we come back to to see, you know, there's screen time and social media is one thing. Is layering in a lockdown, does that uh, accentuate some of the concerns that you're describing? Um, More with Dr. Leonard Sachs, New York Times bestselling author of The Collapse of Parenting, uh, right after this. This is the story of Dr. Heckler and Mr. Jive. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dr. Leonard Sachs. He is a uh, American psychologist, uh, practicing family physician, New York Times bestselling author of The Collapse of Parenting, and most recently, Girls on the Edge, Why So Many Girls Are Anxious, Wired, and Obsessed. And what parents can do. And Dr. Sachs, before the break, we're talking about to sort of the two ways parents you were talking about, two ways parents are approaching uh, more time with the kids at home because of lockdown policies, because of hybrid or complete distance learning with respect to their schooling. But I, I wanted to get your take that that was sort of an issue, uh, the screen time issue you were describing, you know, p- p- parents that allow social media and uh, streaming services to do the parenting rather than parents who are out doing things active with their children, hiking, playing board games to build parental bonds. Uh, but but is there something uh, that has uh, enhanced or degraded even that dynamic in the era of COVID-19 and the associated lockdowns? It was a problem before COVID. What's sure. happened to that problem uh, during COVID? 
Well, when I speak to parents, uh, I always try to ground my recommendations in research, in good studies. And we now have the first good study of American children and teens during the pandemic conducted by, uh, really, I, I regard as the, the leading scholar in this field, Gene Twenge, uh, T-W-E-N-G-E, who surveyed 1,523 American uh, children and adolescents uh, in July, uh, right in, in the middle of this uh, pandemic era, and used the exact same survey and questionnaire that she had used two years previously. So you can compare and, and, of course, she's very careful to control for all the demographic variables, variables, race, ethnicity, household income, region of the country, et cetera, to make sure you're comparing apples to apples, to see has there been a shift. And she and, it's, and my earlier comments reflect uh, and are reinforced by her findings, which were just published a week ago, uh, showing that there has been a bifurcation uh, that kids whose primary uh, priority and their primary connection and their attachment is to other kids their own age, those kids are suffering. They are more likely to be anxious and depressed than they were two years ago. But kids whose primary attachment is to their parents are thriving. They're actually less likely to be anxious and depressed than two years ago. That was my sense from what I'm seeing in the office, and we now have this uh, great study from Jane Twenge that really confirms that uh, with a survey of 1,523 American kids. Well, that's uh, that, that's interesting too. I mean, it, it you know it certainly makes uh, sense, but uh, the, much of the topic in terms of uh, uh, the conversation in terms of parents being home with kids has been on. The, you know, bad parenting has been, uh, well, they're not in school, and that means there's been less reporting of child abuse because schools have first reporting responsibilities uh, or, or, you know, or do report responsibilities, and uh, schools are often the, uh, the place where child abuse is identified. It's always sort of couched in the schools as a, as a guardian of the kid, and, and, and this presents a, a different angle on uh, parenting and, and what happening, what's happening during lockdowns. Well, the great majority of children in the United States are not victims of uh, abuse or neglect. Uh, I share the concerns uh, that social workers have regarding that minority of kids who are uh, victims of abuse or neglect. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really not what I'm speaking to here. Uh, I'm speaking to the experience of the great majority of kids whose parents are not abusive, most American parents are not child abusers and are not neglecting their kids. Uh, most American parents love their kids. But the point I make in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, is that they're doing the wrong thing because they think the way that, to show their love is to let their son spend seven hours a day playing Grand Theft Auto, Call of Duty, or Fortnite. Uh, and that's not the way you show your love as a parent. You show your love as a parent by turning off the screen and spending time with your kid. No, you're. I, I, I get it, and, and it's just a story that isn't told enough. There's a model that's actually working, and, and some kids are actually thriving. You're just not hearing the story about kids thriving in this environment, not because shutting down schools is a good idea, but because the way that parents are interacting with their kids is a good idea, and that's yeah. a story that should be told more often. I, I, uh, 
I wonder, too, about um, how our conversation about COVID impacts young kids uh, thinking. So all of the, you know, hey, we want to open the schools back, but kids go there. They get sick, they infect the parents or they come home or they, they infect the teacher, they come home, they infect a parent or maybe a grandparent living at home. You know, we don't want young kids killing grandma or grandpa or their teacher. I mean, just even talking like that seems to me uh, a little bit jarring. If you're a kid, like I, I don't want to kill my grandparent or my teacher. They're saying if I go to school, I'm going to kill somebody. Well, actually, uh, sharing some personal information here, we actually moved my wife and I moved our daughter from the Agnes Irwin School, a very fine uh, secular school, to the Delaware County Christian School, where she is now attending uh, this fall. And uh, D.C., Delaware County Christian, has in-person classes. Um, and they're um, careful, and uh, kids wear masks. But it's going so far, uh, going well so far. And we're, here we are in late October, and... Uh, there has not been a single case at the school. Uh, so I think it can be done um, if the school is careful uh, in consultation with the parents and public health authorities, as our daughter's new school is doing. Um, I don't think kids need to quarantine at home indefinitely. I don't think that the science supports that. He is Dr. Leonard Sachs. He is a American psychiatrist, psychologist, excuse me, as well as practicing family physician, also New York Times bestselling author, The Collapse of Parenting, and most recently, Girls on the Edge, Why So Many Girls Are Anxious, Wired, and Obsessed, and What Parents Can Do. Dr. Sachs, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks again. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Michael Steele versus 50 Cent. 50 Cent seems to be the one uh, paying more attention to uh, policy in terms of informing his vote for president, the uh, rap star and now actor, too. Uh, he must have been reading the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, noting that uh, Biden, how Biden is selling his tax plan as uh, uh, no tax increase for people making for, uh, $400,000 or less. It doesn't turn out to be the fact, not that uh, 50 Cent is in the less category. He's in the more, but uh, it's still staggering are the numbers in the Biden tax proposal. 50 Cent certainly found them so. Uh, Once you uh, include uh, an elimination of the Trump tax cuts and you return the top marginal rate to its pre-Trump levels and you tack on an extension of the Social Security payroll tax to income over 400,000, uh, above the current cap of 137.7, and the 3.8% in Medicare taxes, 
and the rise in uh, the raising of the capital gains tax on high earners to the same rate as wage income, increasing the rate to effectively 43.4% from 23.8%. Big jump. The top marginal rate rises to about 57% before you include state income taxes that can run as high as 13% in places like California. 50 Cent doesn't want any part of that, saying, um, I'm out, vote for Trump. Now, by contrast, Michael Steele, the former RNC chairman, who has now become a uh, Beltway cable TV show regular, he uh, is uh, come out to support Joe Biden, suggesting, I'm quoting him here, if you cannot see your way through to stand against a president who believes there are fine people on both sides, whose immigration policies involve putting children in cages, if you cannot speak up against a president who sees the death of over 200,000 Americans and speaks upon it as it is what it is, and yet to this day still has no plan to effectively deal with where's the leadership. Uh-huh. So he's uh, starting from all of the false talking points of the left, both fine people on both sides, the Charlottesville lie, the Charlottesville myth. That's the predicate for Joe Biden's campaign. Children in cages. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also said this to Michael Steele. This is not just about getting your tax cut and sitting back fat and lazy. Well, that's an interesting characterization of Trump voters from the former RNC chairman. So uh, 50 Cent is worried about his money uh, from a public policy perspective, tax policy. Uh, Michael Steele is worried about his standing and ultimately his business interests inside the Beltway by taking the right position. Uh, So, um, gosh, who is uh, a more compelling uh, more compelling endorsement. Uh, whose is a, the more compelling endorsement when it comes to this exchange of support? Gosh, on on balance, in terms of fifty cents financial interest being aligned with the American people's versus Michael Steele's just being aligned with Michael Steele's and the Beltway ruling class, I'll take fifty cents all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. We didn't get to this last week, but there was a question in Joe Biden's town hall that uh, deserves attention that didn't get very much attention, including from us, that uh, my oversight on that part. Joe Biden asked by a woman about um, pre-adolescent children choosing their gender, the transgender question, which Joe Biden didn't even know what it was five minutes ago. And now it's the civil rights issue of our era, according to Joe Biden. But 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 no, no, he's not been taken over by the radical identitarian Marxists. OK, um, I'm the proud mom of two girls, eight and ten. My youngest daughter is transgender. The Trump administration has attacked the rights of transgender people, banning them from military service, 
um, weakening non-discrimination protections, and even removing the word transgender from some government websites. How will you, as president, reverse this dangerous and discriminatory agenda and ensure that the lives and rights of LGBTQ people are protected under U.S. law? I will flat out just change the law. Every, eliminate those executive orders, number one. You may recall, I'm the guy who said, uh, I was raised by a man who, uh, I remember I was being dropped off. My, my, my dad was a high school educated, well-read man who uh, was a really decent guy. And I was being dropped off to get, get an application in the center of our city, Wilmington, Delaware, the corporate capital of the world at the time. And these two men, I'm getting out to get a, an application to be a lifeguard in the African-American community because there was a big swimming pool complex. Yeah, and, right. uh, and these two men, well-dressed, leaned up and hugged one another and kissed one another. And I'm getting out of the car at the light, and I turn to my dad. My dad looked at me and said, Joey, it's simple. They love each other. The idea that an 8-year-old child or a 10-year-old child decides, you know, I decided I want to be transgender. That's what I think I'd like to be. It may make my life a lot easier. There should be zero discrimination. An eight-year-old or 10-year-old decides that I want to be transgender. There should be no discrimination. So, so Joe Biden is going to protect eight- and 10-year-olds from choosing their gender, maybe choosing to have physical alterations to their body with the enthusiasm of their parents, as we've seen and we've talked about in this show as well. That's an issue. And by the way, it is also something that you should take notice of because – it's indicative of a larger issue, which is the other thing you'll find out, all of those still clinging to the idea that Joe Biden is some moderate Democrat. The other thing you'll find out after the election, uh, like what his real view on court packing is, is that he is completely turned over to the cultural Marxists who control the Democrat Socialist Party, and he is ready to do their bidding. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Freddie Gray, deputy editor of The Spectator, host of the Americano podcast. Freddie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hello, John. Good to be with you. Good to have you again. And um, so, you know, what about Joe Biden? Uh, again, the trans issue is, is one issue, but it's indicative to me of, uh, of a larger issue, as I described. Well, I, you know, I, I don't want to um, accuse Joe Biden of lying, God forbid. But every no, time no. he tells one of these odd mum and pup stories i think everyone just thinks what utter utter nonsense uh, i mean well when he answers these questions strange because he starts sort of he starts on a path and you can imagine his staff is getting worried as he starts um, going on one of these sort of memories of his childhood and on that one when he said i was raised by a man i thought i actually thought he was going to say i was raised by a man who was in fact <laughs> my dad was transgender. Uh, no, Joe, he wasn't. And his dad also attended a historically black college like Joe Biden did. Oh, wait, no, that didn't happen either. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is where, in a way, Biden's sort of um, incipient uh, timidity, um, to, to, to use an unkind word, but I think that's what it is. I think it helps him in a way because you can't revile a man who clearly has lost contact with reality. So when he talks rubbish, most politicians would be accused of lying. But he's not because he's he's weirder than that. 
And uh, on Thursday night at the debate, uh, the last uh, opportunity for President Trump to be on the same stage with Joe Biden, if you were providing advice and counsel to the president, not that he'd take yours any more than he'd take mine, but what would you say? Well, I think the Hunter Biden story is not going away, and I think he needs to keep uh, drilling on about it. In, in a way, Trump let him off a bit, even though he was quite, he tried to be very direct, and I think he was too direct when he said, I don't care about Bo, I just, I know about Hunter. And he sounded, that sounded a bit cruel, you know, given that, that Bo died in such sad circumstances and so on. But the essential point from Trump was true. Uh, Biden can keep pretending it's offensive to ask questions about um, his son and and, and the fact that his son had a drug problem and that we need to be sympathetic about that and that, and that his other son seemed to be such a good man, et cetera, et cetera. He can keep deflecting on that, but it's not going to go away. And, you know, the, the, the media can keep attacking the New York Post for having published this story. Uh, Twitter and Facebook can, can do their strange magic and try and make the story disappear. But it's not going away now. It's out. It's, it's, it's a serious issue. And... I think the Biden campaign are doing the equivalent of sticking their fingers in their ears and shouting, la, 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 la. Right. And, and, and he needs to bridge it now that we have these. Uh, they're not authenticated, but they they, um, they reek of authenticity. These emails from the computer that implicate Joe Biden and implicate him in lying. He needs to, to say, look, Joe, this isn't about Hunter. This is about you, big guy. This is about you, the big guy. And you're lying about what you were doing when you were vice president. And you, ostensibly, this is Rudy Giuliani's case, you actually at the center of this, using your relatives, including your son, as bagmen. That's what I want to know. Well, I think that would be a very sensible line of attack. And I think, uh, I I just hope that Trump is able to do it, because I I don't think he's actually, he's a great counterpuncher. I don't think he's so good when he's, and trying to do the dissecting himself. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, what, one other thing that's developed this week, uh, it's been a little bit uh, uh, muted because of the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden story. But uh, first uh, Ice Cube and now 50 Cent turn out to be white supremacists, Freddie. Uh, who would have thought? Uh, uh, Ice Cube, uh, a big political story about how Ice Cube uh, folded in with the the Trump campaign effectively. And Ice T out, uh, excuse me, not Ice T, 50 Cent out yesterday, excuse me, endorsing President Trump over uh, essentially a rejection of Joe Biden's tax plan. Uh, 50 Cent doesn't want to give 60 percent of his money to the federal government, it turns out. Um, just interesting in, in, in context because of uh, all of the, the because of the obsession, of course, with uh, race identity politics the press corps has vis-a-vis Trump. Yes. Well, I thought so. I thought maybe at one level, if you, if you take the sort of racial element out of it, at one level, uh, it might be a sort of genius tactic by some Democratic operative to make people like Biden when you have billionaire rappers uh, saying that they don't want to be taxed under a Biden administration. I'd have thought that might make some people quite keen uh, on taxing billionaire rappers. Um, but no, I, I think it, 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 it's very odd how um, sort of every now and then, Figures like 50 Cent, sort of public figures, suddenly wake up to this idea that, hey, a Biden administration is going to be really bad. And, and they are promptly screamed at and shouted down for, for saying so in public. Well, and the, and the other aspect of this, too, and boy, wouldn't this be just the, the uh, most uh, delicious karmic justice that has ever been delivered politically? Uh, Trump's 
support, apparent support among Latino voters and to a lesser extent black voters around the country that could be determinative in swing states from Florida and Nevada with respect in Arizona with respect to the Latino vote, uh, places like Michigan and North Carolina with respect to the black vote. Wouldn't it be something if the identitarians were hoist by their own petar and it's those families that they purport to represent who put Trump over the top because of his incremental improvement in his standing with those voters? I think that would be quite a delicious irony. I, I think, I mean, as far as I can see, the, the, the Trump campaign's appeal to black voters uh, has not been as successful as they might have hoped. Uh, Hispanic voters, they do seem to have grown, grown by a few percentage points their share. Uh, but it's also interesting, Asian Americans who represent a, a very rapidly growing share of the national demographic, the national electorate, uh, are, seem to be a lot warmer on Trump uh, than a lot of people realize. So I, I do think it would be interesting if he turns out to win uh, thanks to his, his growing support among minorities, definitely. He is Freddie Gray, deputy editor of The Spectator, host of the Americano podcast. Freddie, thanks for joining us. Great pleasure as always. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Father Ed Meeks is a uh, priest at Christ the King Parish in Towson, Maryland. And uh, he gave a uh, homily the uh, other weekend at uh, Sunday Mass where he uh, talked about five things that Catholics should know about uh, the Biden and Harris ticket if you don't already. And by extension, it should inform their vote. Some of it is uh, pretty straightforward. It's what you'd expect. The fact that uh, both are pro-abortion. And particularly Joe Biden, who flouts his Catholicism, pro-abortion. And remember, Joe Biden in the first debate, I am the Democrat Party. So he owns it. The redefinition of marriage, socialists giving way to socialism and what we know about how socialist states have treated people of faith for the last hundred years, just that time period. What we have seen when socialist regimes come to power, it necessarily involves tyranny and it necessarily involves the repression of religion and the persecution of the faithful. Something uh, else he talked about, though, Father Meeks, uh, one about religious liberty in a Biden-Harris administration, and also how Joe Biden specifically undermines the faith to which he says he adheres. First, religious liberty. Number three, a Biden presidency would be a danger to our already dwindling religious liberty. He and his party advocate for the repeal of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which protects the religious conscience rights of health care workers who decline to participate in abortions and of church-based adoption agencies that choose to place children only with married heterosexual couples, among other things. Biden is also on record committing to restoring the Obamacare mandate requiring religious ministries and orders like the Little Sisters of the Poor to provide contraceptive and abortifacient drugs to their employees, despite the fact that that is a direct violation of their faith conviction and of church teaching. And, of course, this is ecumenical 
in scope. This uh, applies to Orthodox Jewish communities. It applies to Muslim communities. It applies to all of the great faith traditions, not just Catholics or Christians. And on the, the particular argument about Joe Biden as a Catholic of stature and how his uh, anti-catechism positions undermine the faith. Joe Biden's positions on these four moral issues as a very high-profile Catholic, a man who served in the U.S. Senate for more than three decades, then as vice president for eight years, and now as a candidate for president, a very high-profile Catholic, his positions then serve to subvert and undermine the faith of nominal and poorly catechized Catholics. And there's a lot of those nominal and poorly catechized. And uh, look, uh, we talk about uh, the black vote and the Latino vote and the Asian vote and the women vote. Well, there's uh, the votes among the faithful, too, of all religions that have been particularly impactful and have moved around a bit over the last three cycles. For example, President Obama won Catholic self-identified Catholic voters both in 08 and 12. And that was uh, reversed by President Trump in 2016, where he won narrowly, but he won Catholic voters. And then within the Catholic vote, it becomes complicated because there's a growing percentage of the Catholic vote is Latino because they're having bigger families. And of course, the Latino vote has historically, there's been a much bigger spread among Latino voters, Democrat to Republican than other ethnicities within the cat underneath the Catholic umbrella. But anyway, uh, an important message. And it's time that faith leaders spoke out just as we want politicians to speak out when somebody is being persecuted or ridiculed, or litmus test for their faith. That's what happened to Amy Coney Barrett when she was a nominee for the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And that's what happened, not at the hands of Senate Democrats this time, because they had the D.C. press corps to do their dirty work, but it happened again the week leading up to and the week during her confirmation hearing. And there's an interesting piece in Real Clear Politics from former United States Senator Norm Coleman, and the connection that he actually has to Amy Coney Barrett sort of by faith group. Uh, for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by former United States Senator Norm Coleman, who uh, served Minnesota from 2002 to 2009 in the Senate, mayor of St. Paul from 94 to 2002 prior to that. Norm Coleman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Yeah, this is great to have you. This was really interesting. Um, as a Jewish parent of two alumni of Trinity School in Minnesota, who deeply laments that those opposed to Judge Bear's confirmation created a campaign rooted in religious bigotry. That's what you wrote about uh, what happened to Amy Coney Barrett and the connection to your school and the headmaster at your kid's school. So I think the Democrats learned from the lesson when, when uh, Judge Barrett, soon to be Justice Barrett, went uh, for confirmation of Circuit Court of Appeals. You know, you had the famous quote by Dianne Feinstein, that the dogma lives deeply within you as if that, that is a bad thing. <laughs> and uh, I, I think uh, uh, Dick Durbin uh, from, the, uh, from the Illinois Democrat Senator, you know, talking about being an, an Orthodox Catholic. Uh, remember, these are the same folks that were labeling folks who tied to the Knights of Columbus as some kind of radical group. Uh, and uh, I have, I'm a parent, I'm the, by the way, national chairman of the Republican Jewish Coalition. And uh, our kids, I married a Catholic, but our, our kids went to Trinity. But by the way, because it's the best high school, uh, best school, public school high school, I, I think in the state, it's, I think, three-time winner of a Blue Ribbon Commission Award, which is the only school in the state, I think, that has a, that honor. And this is a school that uh, 
uh, you start Latin in the seventh grade. Uh, my, my our daughter went to Notre Dame and she uh, studied the Great Books program. Uh, and uh, in the first year of reading, she said, "Dad, I've, I've read about everything on this reading list, and, and in fact, uh, the Aeneid I read it in Latin." So this is a good school, and I've gotten to know the people, praise folks. And, and if you saw what, what happened, Democrats learned their lesson, uh, and, and to stay away from uh, the, the anti-Catholic, anti-religious approach uh, that they took in the in the circuit court confirmation. And, and you're right, you know, and they left it up to their to their friends in the media, the Washington Post, uh, the New York Times, uh, Salon. BuzzFeed, all these stories about uh, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett and her far-right religious cult. Uh, the, these, uh, I, I, I know the, the folks involved in People of Praise. Uh, I've dined with them and broken bread with them on many occasions. Uh, I've watched, uh, you know, my kids have gone to school, you know, with their teachers, and they just happen to be folks who are regular Americans that, uh, you know, believe in the Judeo-Christian, you know, uh, tradition. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're your neighbors, they're your friends. And, and uh, so I, I, I think the, the Dems learned their lesson not to kind of lead with this punch, but it still kind of, you know, circulates out there. It, it's, and I, well, I, I wrote my piece because, uh, as we saw at the Kavanaugh nomination, as he got closer to, to confirmation, the level of attacks increased. Uh, and so the Democrats may have been focusing on uh, concerns about health care uh, even though uh, Judge Barrett made it very clear that she hasn't taken a position, she's going to go do what Judge is supposed to do: is listen to the the, the evidence, review the briefs, uh, and, and then decide as a matter of law. Uh, it's clear that that the background noise is this noise about cult, about somehow if you're a person of faith, that that's inconsistent inconsistent with serving on the Supreme Court, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. When we come back with former Minnesota Senator Norm Coleman, I want to talk a little bit more about your kid's school and also get your handle on where you think Minnesota stands in the presidential. More with Norm, Col- more with Norm Coleman right after this. Show.com. We're back with former Minnesota Senator Norm Coleman, also former mayor of St. Paul. We're talking about the Trinity School where his kids attended high school in Minnesota. And uh, the um, interesting aspect of Trinity as it relates to Mary Coney Barrett, and that is Beth Schmitz, also affiliated with People of Praise, this charismatic Christian community that Amy Coney Barrett was affiliated with that was treated as some sort of cult, and so that that, that connect. Right, yeah. And Amy Coney Barrett, I, I believe, was on the board of Trinity Schools at some point in time. That should be a thing that is praiseworthy, that you care about kids' education. Uh, in this case, this is education where... People read original text. Uh, they learn, as I said, Latin from the seventh grade and then another language. Every student has to take some kinds of music. Uh, I mean, this is about kind of classical education. Uh, you know, one of the things is, is that it has actually become a model for other schools. 
So this is, you know, rather than being this kind of, these articles try to paint this portrait of this kind of insulated community, just the opposite. Trinity School has folks coming from all over to look at it, to observe it, to take it as a model. If all kids could get that kind of education, we would all be better off. America would be better off. We'd have folks who understood our history, understood from whence we came, understanding the classics, understanding of art, understanding of culture. And we're losing a lot of that today. So this is something to be heralded not something to be attacked. I wanted to ask you a question about close elections because you had an experience with one in 2008 where you lost your seat to Al Franken by 312 votes out of 3 million cast. And I wonder uh, how you are watching this election play out, this unique election with uh, the preemptive mail-in voting and all of the uh, court challenges state by state and counting absentee ballots three days after the election in Pennsylvania without the need for postmarks and so on and so forth. How you see this playing out uh, in part uh, informed by your experience in Minnesota? My race was a race that I won on election night. Uh, right. I won when all the machines were recounted. I was still the winner. And then we went through a process of deciding to uh, count votes that weren't counted, mail-in ballots that weren't counted on election night. And uh, you know, what you had is, is, is just like give you three observations. And, and, and let me just say this. We want everyone to vote, but it should be one person, one vote. Mm-hmm. And by the way, mail-in balloting, there's nothing wrong with that if you follow the rules. And so absentee balloting in Minnesota, you know, requires a witness. And by the way, the witness to be a registered voter. You have three problems with the process that's going on now. You have a number of states, by the way, that have done mail-in ballot actually for a long period of time. And I don't think you're finding problems in those that have done this for many years, worked the kinks out. But if you have folks that simply kind of rush into this and you're sending a vote to everyone who is registered, but that person may be dead or may have moved, then you got an issue. How these things are processed. I mean, one of the, I think in my race, there were 19 precincts in Minneapolis that had more votes than voters. And so... To say that voter fraud fraud doesn't take place is is no, it does take place. Uh, And I'm going to say this up front. If you've got folks that are willing to burn down federal buildings, that are willing to attack police, that are willing to set things on fire, so what's a little election fraud? You know, what is that? Yeah. Somehow it's going to upset their kind of their moral balance. I don't think so. And and so you really do want to have a system that, that you can trust, that people have confidence in. You want to make sure that everyone applies by the same rules, the same standards. You know, having a witness sign a ballot shouldn't be a difficult thing to do, even in even COVID times. By the way, showing up to vote shouldn't be difficult, even in COVID times. You have the capacity to make sure that that, that can be safe. Even, even Dr. Fauci has said, you know, he's going to vote in person. And so I think we do have to be cautious about a system uh, that simply kind of throws out ballots like it's popcorn. Trump is making a real play for Minnesota. Do you think Minnesota is in play for President Trump? So I, he lost Minnesota by 45,000 votes last time without making any effort here. It's about one and a half percent. In the rural areas where he has great strength, great strength, you know, we were unfortunately divided America. Uh, Democrats are very strong in the urban centers. But in, for instance, the rural areas, 69 percent of eligible voters voted. In the urban areas, 75 percent voted. If Trump can up the turnout in rural areas and if he can kind of cut in in the, in the Hispanic and African-American vote, which I believe he should be able to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact is, the things that he's done for the minority community, in spite of all the Democrats for years, Democrats have promised to take care of the black communities. And what do you have? The results have not been positive. The, 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 they didn't deal with the problems in the core cities, and you're seeing that today. The violence in the Chicago's, the violence in, in the Baltimore's, the violence in the urban centers. And so, you know, Trump gets out there and uh, he does criminal justice reform. And Trump, uh, you know, his 
to support the historical black colleges at an overwhelming level. Prior to COVID, had the highest employment rates ever for African-Americans, for Hispanics. One of the expressions we have in Minnesota is, is we all know that, no offense to any of your Scandinavian listeners here, we all know the, the Norwegian or Santa, who loved his wife so much he almost told her. Uh, my Democrat <laughs> friends, my Democrat <laughs> friends care so much about, about poverty, about minorities, who almost do something, but they don't. Uh, no. uh, so the president has that is Fargo uh, quality uh, writing there. You, you're like you're like the lost Cohen brother with that line. That's that's very good. <laughs> Senator Norm <laughs> Coleman, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Great pleasure. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I don't uh, like to spend a lot of time talking on polling other than to provide some context because just, there are just so many polls on a daily basis and so much methodology to uh, dig through. And they only provide a snapshot in time. So they can be here today, gone tomorrow in terms of getting any real handle on the race, even to some extent people's uh, opinions on a particularly salient topic. But I thought Rich Lowry had a very interesting interview with the uh, founder of Trafalgar, uh, the, the Trafalgar polling operation, Robert Cahalli. Well, uh, why Trafalgar? Well, because they got the 2016 election right. Uh, they got Pennsylvania right. They got Michigan right. They had the best poll in the five in uh, five of the battleground states. And uh, Cahalli actually predicted correctly the electoral college distribution, 306 to 232. And so I thought it would be interesting just to talk a little bit about the methodology that Trafalgar uses and, and Rich Lowry extracts out of Cahalli, in part to give you a, a sense of why there is such variance among polls, how they approach the polling, how they form the questions, the, their expectations about what Election Day turnout looks like. Uh, whether or not it's likely voters or, or registered voters, all of these things matter, whether they use live calls or automated polling, the length of the survey, all these things matter. Also, the other reason is because I'm getting this question from too many people who otherwise should know better, particularly after the 2016 election, to say, does Trump still have a chance like he has uh, been knocked down four times and he has to win an he has to score a knockout in the 12th round in order to win this thing. When And, and I understand why, because they see not only the polls, the national polls, but the, the betting odds that have Biden a two to one favorite, of course, predicated on those same national polls. And uh, the media's relentlessness does a good job of demoralizing people. Well, Cahalli thinks Trump is actually up right now per his conversation with Lowry. And if you look at the real clear politics average, of the battleground states, Trump is slightly ahead of where he was in 2016. Not way ahead, as President Trump is wont to say, as he said yesterday in Tucson, but ahead. In fact, I would say it's more likely than not Trump wins as we stand here today. A lot still to happen in two weeks. The debate, the Hunter Biden story, other matters, some things unforeseen, almost certainly. But uh, going to the methodology here. So just to give you this context and feel free to share it with those who otherwise are succumbing to the effort to demoralize being advanced by Biden and his handmaidens in the media so as to you know, try to discourage Trump supporters 
or the marginally inclined Trump supporter in particular to uh, come out and vote. Uh, one thing is the number of questions on the survey, as I mentioned. Kahali says, I don't believe in long questionnaires. I think when you're calling up mom or dad on a school night and they're trying to get the kids dinner and get them to bed and that phone rings at seven o'clock and they're supposed to stop what they're doing and take a 25 to 30 question poll, no way. So he keeps the questions uh, between uh, the number of questions from seven to nine. And by the way, if all you're really looking to do is get the horse race number, candidate A versus candidate B, then that's really all you need anyway. Also, how questions are asked. Uh, asked. Uh, Kahali says, we do not like to do live calls. And this goes to something he describes as the social desirability bias. People with opinions that are unpopular or they perceive them to be unpopular, they perceive them to be minority opinions, particularly in certain circles. Kahali says they don't want to be judged by somebody on the phone that they don't know. They've seen all this stuff of people being shamed for their opinion, people losing their jobs. So they're even more reticent in these days than they are normally. So Trafalgar mixes up how it contacts people and especially wants respondents to you know, feel comfortable in responding. Kahali says we use a collection methods of live calls, auto calls, text emails and a couple that we call our proprietary digital technology that we don't explain. But it's also digital. The point he, cont- he, he sa- says is to really push the anonymous part. This is your anonymous say so. So there won't be repercussions because he, of course, the pollster is trying to get what you really believe and thus will reflect on Election Day versus what you think you should say because you are being judged. Also, interesting aspect of uh, what Kahali finds. Conservatives less likely to participate in polls in general. We see a five to one refusal rate among conservatives. Kelly saying that means you have to work very hard to get a fair representation of conservatives when you do any kind of survey. And by the way, the, the conservative versus somewhat conservative, very conservative, versus somewhat conservative. I mean, not just Republicans, but you have to get conservatives because there's a big difference between uh, a died in the wool Trump supporter or a intellectual conservative uh, from your Jeff Flakes, Mitt Romney's, John McCain's of the world. So the distribution within the distribution matters. Trafalgar also goes about building its list differently. He uh, says, Kahali says, they, they noticed something in polling in Georgia and South Carolina in the primary in 2016, Republican primary. People voting who didn't know how to use the touch machines. People showing up who hadn't voted in 15 years. So what Trafalgar did is go out of its way to include, to build lists that include these sorts of low propensity voters, at least the expectation of, you know, what sort of turnout you would get from this category of low propensity voters to inform your uh, projected Election Day turnout. If you get the distribution of the turnout on Election Day wrong, then your margin of error increases quickly, doesn't it? As we've seen. He uh, said other pollsters probably weren't even reaching out to these people. Uh, His firm now has a sort of fingerprint of characteristics meant to find these hard to identify voters. And he also excoriates pollsters who use exit polls from previous elections to determine the demographics of the current electorate. Exit polls can give you a sense of how people are voting, but how many people of certain age, ethnicity, geogra- geography turned out? You ain't got to guess at that. It's a knowable number, and every single state maintains those statistics. The last piece of it is uh, sample sizes. He uh, doesn't like to do smaller sample sizes, even within the 95% confidence interval. He doesn't want to do a state uh, with less than 1,000 completed surveys. Uh, he just finds the margin of error is too high. Now, of course, the, the more the better to refine in on the, uh, dis- the, the attitudes of the electorate. Um, a lot of these media companies that want to get a, a polling firm, you know, cheap as possible, you know, give me the bare minimum of what's needed to give me something that's uh, plus or minus 
5% and we'll go with that where he's trying to be obviously a lot more surgical to be a lot more accurate. And that's what he's been. Uh, so I, I just think the methodology and the distinctions here and this sort of um, <laughs> dismal science to borrow a term normally associated with economics, but we'll apply it to polling. This dismal science gives you a sense of why there are some differences in terms of how different firms have a handle on the race and uh, and how perhaps Trafalgar calls it right in 2016 and maybe Kahali, with, uh, who sees a Trump win right now, will call it right again in 2020. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, switching from uh, the nuts and bolts of electoral politics to cultural politics, ubiquitous as the infusion of politics is in culture. Let's talk about sports. You want to watch the NFL now that it's dissipated a bit, uh, the propagandizing, despite uh, the NFL still subsidizing all sorts of identitarian political commercials and causes, despite the uh, Warner Brothers, Hollywood Studios, inking deals with uh, Patrice Cullors, one of the Marxist co-founders of Black Lives Matter, the organization, to do um, programming for Warner Brothers the way that the Obamas are doing programming for Netflix to continue prosecuting the identitarian case in popular entertainment. Monday Night Football last night. Come for them kneeling before the anthem and stay for the incisive pre-kickoff commentary from Troy Aikman and Joe Buck. Did you catch this before the Cowboys and Cardinals game? It's a lot of jet fuel just to do a little flyover. That's your hard-earned money and your tax dollars at work. That stuff ain't happening with Kamala Biden ticket. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. Uh, okay, partner, uh, you're right because uh, jet fuel, like all fossil fuels, will be banned there, Troy. In my hometown of Chicago, I can't wait for all the champagne socialists who can afford bear season tickets to uh, also be outraged anytime there's a flyover before a Bears game to the extent that fans are ever allowed back in Soldier Field. I live in a lockdown state, of course, so you won't see fans, you won't see Bears fans at Soldier Field the way you can see them in the stands of Carolina, for example. But isn't it just so tiresome? <laughs> it's not just the fact that it's politics is being infused. It's also just the quality of the commentary from your Joe Bucks and your Troy Aikmans, as if I couldn't despise the Cowboys more. Thank you, Troy. Thank you, Joe. Still want to go back? Still think the, the water is safe? Now, that doesn't mean I eschew all sports figures. There are some who make sense. There are some that are thoughtful in professional athletics, like anywhere else. Uh, Herschel Walker, again, uh, with great commentary upon the news that uh, Ice Cube is uh, engaged in a bit of a walk away from the Trump campaign. Listen to what former NFL great and cowboy, admittedly, but I like Herschel Walker. I think of him as a Viking and then as a Georgia Bulldog instead of a cowboy. Herschel Walker on Ice Cube, the walk away and the criticism Ice Cube. And as we talked about earlier in the show, 50 Cent get for not hewing to the orthodoxy. You know, you ain't black. Well, I've been asked many questions about Ice Cube, and I don't really know Ice Cube, but I know he was trying to do something great for the African-American community. And he's been ridiculed, he's been put down, and I think it's sad. He went to both campaigns. 
and the Joe Biden campaign told him we would get back in touch with you after the election, which has happened to African-American for years. We've been put on the shelf where the Trump campaign jumped on it, and he never said he was supporting the Trump campaign. And like I said early on, I don't know him, but I think it's a shame that he will be put down, put down for trying to help someone. One thing I do know is that our Lord and, Sha- our Lord and Savior does show favoritism. If he helped you to build your bridge, you go and help someone to build theirs. So you're doing a good thing. I stand with you. And I stand with Herschel Walker, professional athlete. This is Dan Frost. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at Dan Proft Show. Uh, some news out uh, this week about retail sales that was positive. Pretty strong gain in September, about uh, three times expectations, retail sales and food services spending, posting a uh, 1.9% increase from the prior month, well above the seven-tenths of a percent consensus expectation, the fifth in a row, fifth month in a row, following two devastating declines in March and April per the national lockdown, or virtually national lockdown. Uh, and... Um, so that's a that's a positive sign. But now we're second wave and you've got lockdown and bus politicians suggesting that uh, uh, a reversion to earlier phases of openness may be the order of the day in Chicago and elsewhere. Uh, and uh, against this, you have a presidential candidate, Joe Biden, who suggested he'll listen to the quote unquote scientists as if they're monolithic when it comes to uh, pushing for a national lockdown again if uh, they believe they, the undefined they, believe so. And uh, at the same time saying, during the first debate, we'll see what he has to say on Thursday, to the extent the topic comes out, that uh, President Trump's trade war with China was a failure. You started a trade war with China and you lost, is what Joe Biden said. And that's one of the other reasons he seemed to be implying that things are not as good economically as they otherwise could be. For more on all of that, uh, matters economic policy related both domestically and uh, globally, we're pleased to be joined again by Casey Mulligan, professor of economics at the University of Chicago. He served as the chief economist of the White House Council of Economic Advisors in 2018-2019. And he's the author of the recently released Your Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. Casey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always glad to join you, Dan. So um, what's your handle on where things stand as we uh, have hybrid learning and, and hybrid economies, some open and some not so open throughout the country, and you get sort of some indicators that are contradicted by other indicators? Uh, spending is good, uh, but unemployment claims were up a little bit. Uh, your general assessment of where things stand as we wait for the uh, September GDP number. Well, we've had... Uh pretty darn close to a, a V recovery. Um, you know, even the unemployment claims, you know, the, the headline gets to be the, the new claims, people asking to be part of the system. But the one that I pay attention to is people who have actually got the claims. Um, that avoids some double counting because you can, if you're rejected, you can try to 
claim again. Mm. Um, and that's fall, I think it fell uh, last week a million people. So a million people went off of unemployment um, and a lot of them into jobs, um, which is pretty much fitting the V type of pattern. Um, now I don't see how everything can get back to normal until the virus is is gone one way or another. It's not not a factor in people's behavior. People will still be you know concerned about going to Disney World and and crowded places and uh, NFL games and that sort of thing. Um, but an awful lot of what we do can get back to normal, and most of it has, with the exception, as you said, with the schooling. That can get back to normal even while the virus among us. Um, but th as you know, there are a lot of districts that haven't, uh, let's say, realized that yet. And, and in terms of imbuing the, uh, uh, the the population with optimism, I mean, President Trump has suggested on the campaign trail that that third quarter GDP number, that's going to be uh, a historically big number. And that should be encouraging to people as they think about who they're going to support going into November 3rd. Yeah, although I don't think they need the number. They probably know themselves. Um, you know, just look at the traffic in Chicago now. It's, it's coming back to normal. Now people are on the trains like they normally are, but uh, I've been really impressed with the amount of cars that are on the road in every weekday morning and every weekday afternoon. Uh, although, you know, in certain sectors, right, I mean, every every sector is a little bit different. In those public-facing sectors like uh, retail, particularly restaurants, bars, um, those are still taking a beating, and as the cold weather comes in cold weather states, uh, the, at least those states that uh, are uh, slow to reopen, uh, th that sector looks to be in for yeah, a rough ride for months to come, at least. There is that danger. I, it'll depend on how the locals handle it um, in the different areas, um, but it, it is a danger, and it, <clears throat> also with the winter, the virus could make a comeback. A lot of people are predicting that, and they, they may be right. Um, and that'll cause people to be more cautious than they are at, at, right now, which is still a fair bit of caution. Uh, I want to go to this piece that you penned uh, for National Review comparing uh, Reagan and Trump and their tariff policies. And so, so much has been made of the uh, the Trump tariffs and the uh, ostensible trade war with China. As I said at the outset, uh, Joe Biden saying that uh, President Trump has lost the trade war to China. You write to sort of in conclusion in this piece um, that uh, the Trump administration, unlike the Reagan administration, has so far mostly avoided protecting domestic producers in ways that profit foreign companies. Um, so there's some been obviously tariffs are protection protectionist in nature, but they've done so without enriching foreign companies. Uh, explain to us how they have threaded that needle. Yeah, there's really two ways <clears throat> that protectionism can be implemented with the tariffs that we've all seen in the last couple of years. Um, the other way it can be implemented is with quotas. And so, so there, and this is what Ronald Reagan did. People forgot this, but he did this in a big way. He just said, okay, uh, Japanese companies, there's only so many cars you can send here. You work it out among yourselves, which you will have the privilege of sending the car here, but we're going to have a quote on the number of cars. Um, and the Japanese companies love that because, then they didn't compete with each other, um, and our consumer paid for that. In fact, people who did my job in the Reagan administration kind of pulled me aside and whispered in my ear and said, you know, the Japanese companies came to the White House back in Reagan's day and asked him for those quotas, and, and Reagan delivered. Um, so the, the foreign companies made money in, in Reagan's approach, and 
our treasury makes money and, and Trump's approach. They're both protectionists, but they have that important difference. Well, and, and there was also uh, this um, look-see at uh, how the tariffs have impacted uh, China and the United States. And um, uh, essentially, the analysis was that uh, China had suffered a much bigger GDP hit than America did. So it sort of buttressed the idea that uh, America is in a much stronger position to endure uh, a tit-for-tat on tariffs than than China is and continues to be. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty parallel to the Japanese situation in the 80s. Um, now, Japanese, Japan was a democracy and they didn't have an army or a military, and that's that's different. But otherwise, I see a lot of parallels. Uh, well, I mean, just a, OK, uh, but parallels and, and obviously we know how that turned out. China or uh, Japan was supposed to once they bought uh, uh, Rockefeller Center, that was going to be the end of America's hegemony. And of course, then China uh, essentially enjoyed the lost decade or didn't enjoy it so much. And uh, and they were gone from the scene as a real threat to America's economic power. But I just wanted to go go back to this. This uh, University of Minnesota paper uh, estimates that the. Um, Trade war cost China $35 billion, or about three-tenths of a percent of GDP, cost the U.S. about $15.6 billion, or about 0.08 percent GDP. And, of course, it, uh, it benefited countries uh, in, in Southeast Asia like Vietnam, where companies started to move their supply chains to uh, from China. And so, I mean, do you look at this as uh, somebody inclined to be uh, a free trader like myself and say, well, this has actually been somewhat successful because we had to do some sort of reckoning with China for their intellectual piracy and other transgressions. And this is um, this includes some pain for American consumers, but the net net is going to be positive long term. If the president delivers on those some of those protections, um, I, I'm optimistic that he will, but in the end of the day, you got to show me the money, as they say. And, and Reagan was able to do that, although let me say it took Reagan two terms to get the intellectual property protections, copyrights and so on from Japan and some other East Asian tigers. But he did get them in the end. Well, that's um, a, and, and that's an important parallel, too. That's another thing that people have forgotten about the uh, Reagan administration, that the, uh, in terms of your comparison of China now to Japan in the 80s, that we had the same intellectual piracy issue. Yeah, an awful lot of parallels. In fact, a lot of the same faces in, in the Trump White House are faces from the Trump, uh, from the Reagan White House, including their head trade negotiator now, uh, Lighthizer. He was the number two trade negotiator for Ronald Reagan. He is Casey Mulligan, professor of economics at University of Chicago, served as the chief economist of the White House Council of Economic Advisors in 2018-2019, and the author of the recently released You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. Professor Casey Mulligan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The uh, Northwestern iconic Weber Arch was uh, defaced this week. Spray painted on the arch up there in leafy Evanston. 
quoting, more dead pigs, F-U-C-P-D, what appears to be Alu Akbar in Arabic, anarchy, the anarchy A, police uh, still trying to figure out which Evanston housewife is responsible for defacing the arch. Uh, Over at Brown University, conservative students on uh, college campuses uh, need to be a little bit more sensitive because um, Brown University researchers says Trump signs and American flags traumatize and scare black people. Brown University researcher, Brown University is in the Ivy League, researcher there, Trump signs, American flags scare and traumatize black people. Uh, Meanwhile, our friend uh, Patrice Cullors has a new Hollywood deal. Patrice Cullors, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. She is a a, a vowed uh, Black Lives Matter organization. Uh, She is a vowed Marxist. Signed a multi-year agreement with a Hollywood studio, according to the L.A. Times, uh, Warner Brothers specifically, which intends to elevate black voices on television, promulgate the agenda of her organization. The L.A. Times reporting, building on her political activism, the L.A. native plans to work with the student to develop scripted dramas and comedies, docu-series and animated programming for children, young adults and families. Oh, wonderful. I hope it flies in formation with what the Obamas are doing at Netflix. A Patrice Cullors Marxist uh, deal with Warner Brothers to develop some programming for your kids. Amy Lutz, a historian and Young Voices contributor based in Missouri, says that uh, conservatives shouldn't give up on academia. And I'm a little confused as to why. So we decided to have her on the program to explain. Amy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so um, I'm totally ready to give an academia, arts and entertainment, the full panoply of cultural institutions. Tell me why I should hang in there. You know, I I certainly don't. um, I certainly understand your skepticism and I understand the concern. Look, I went to undergraduate and graduate school at pretty liberal universities. So I've seen my fair share of stories like the ones that you shared. But, you know, I think conservatives, we don't need our own safe space. We don't need to hide in our own ideological silos. In my experience and in my professional and personal experience working with a lot of students, I have found one of the most shocking things I've experienced at universities is is not necessarily the direct um, antagonism towards conservative students, although that, that exists. It's the astounding lack of understanding of what conservatism is. And what I wrote in my piece and how I look at it is part of that, you know, it's certainly multifaceted, but part of that is because there are so few conservatives represented in academia. My main argument is that conservative students, conservative academics, even though it's a challenge, I'm not going to pretend it's not, we need to make ourselves represented so that liberal academics, liberal students fall back less on stereotypes, less on media portrayals of conservatives, and more on what conservatives actually are. You know, what, what I wrote in my piece, again, is that it's, it's up to us as individuals to be, you know, to quote Wordsworth, be the happy warriors, to be the good examples mm-hmm. of, of conservatives. Um, and to, you know, I, I found when I was a freshman in college that I, I was so afraid to go into classrooms with liberal professors that I was automatically on the defensive. And again, that's understandable. But what I found through my college experience, and again, working with lots of other students myself, is that when you go in to borrow a phrase from Reagan, who borrowed it from a Russian proverb, trust but verify, you trust that you're going to learn something in this class, regardless of whether, regardless of where the professor comes. If you go in with that mindset, not blinded 
you know, if you run into an issue, there are organizations you can turn to. You're going to be able to learn much more uh, yourself and also to connect with other students who think differently than you. So it's really almost an individual initiative, personal responsibility effort where, you know, we shouldn't give up on academia. We need to be there. We need to be there being good representatives of conservatism. No, I think that's right, uh, honestly. And, and, and you have to back the play of people who are willing to stand up and, and deal intellectually and deal on the merits. And there are many professors around the country, most of them members of the National Association of Scholars, um, other affiliated organizations and law schools, the Federalist Society and so forth. So it's not like there that you have zero conservatives coming out of academia or mm-hmm. or or as uh, professors in, 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 in even to a lesser extent, administrators in academia. And it seems like there's perhaps uh, the need to build more of a support network so that there is an an ability to rally to people who are being unfairly treated uh, when they are un, uh, inevitably unfairly treated, whether it's on a college campus or in entertainment or in sports or, or anywhere else. It's, it just seems like the left has more cultural infrastructure where they can support those who come under uh, criticism, uh, even justified criticism. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a great point. I think it's it's really important to build infrastructure within institutions. You know, you would be surprised how many conservative or even centrist professors that I've run across and, and who I know personally who just aren't outspoken. There are more than you would think. There are not that many, but there are more than you would think. And especially as a graduate student, I looked around and thought, oh, my goodness, I'm a unicorn here. I'm the only right-leaning person in, in this in this department. But as I found, first off, that wasn't necessarily true. Uh, but what, what I would have been, I think, supported by was some sort of infrastructure within my school, maybe within the area. And some of those do exist. You know, there are organizations like ADF and FIRE that do a great job um, bringing legal cases when, when students come into issues like this. But I think, you know, going back to my original point, I think we need to not leave academia, but form our own support system within it. Well, and what about uh, forming our own academic institutions, not just support systems? So rather than trying to uh, get some representation or acknowledgement or even tolerance on Ivy League campuses, uh, why not uh, have some of these professors who've been ousted uh, or are being treated badly but uh, are under tenure protection uh, uh, found another Hillsdale College or a version of that, uh, the, something like the Heterodox Academy, where you're doing virtual uh, intellectual instruction with all, corns, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, academic dissidents. It seems to me that more new stuff needs to be developed, particularly in the era of remote learning in part. Well, certainly. I mean, I, I, there's, there's absolutely a role for that kind of thing. Um, that's why there are a lot of nonprofit organizations. Heterodox Academy is a great example uh, because they really pride, you know, heterodox education, multiple viewpoints um, within academia. And, and building support systems outside of academia is important as well. And, and look, there are great universities like Hillsdale College, like Grove City College, and there are lots of students who go in and out of there and get great education. Um, so I, I think the, the goal is, is multifaceted. You know, my, my point is, you know, there's a role for those institutions, uh, those support institutions outside of academia. There's a role for conservative colleges, and there's a role for conservatives and conservative academics within left-leaning leaning institutions. Um, the point is, we shouldn't abandon those completely. She is Amy Lutz, historian, Young Voices contributor, based in Missouri. Conservatives shouldn't give up on academia. Her piece at uh, 
uh, American Conservative, which I will tweet out. Amy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Chicago Mayor Triple Threats press conference yesterday. It was a somber affair as uh, she detailed a spike in cases, a so called second wave. Uh, here's the problem, uh, particularly as things get colder out, uh, people retreat to enclosed spaces. Folks, make no mistake, this is the second surge that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Arwady have been warning about since March. We are now in it. And the reason should not be any surprise to any of us. Let's take stock. COVID thrives in enclosed spaces. And as the weather cools and people spend more time indoors... The chances of outbreaks and new cases go up exponentially. All right, so it thrives in enclosed spaces. Remember that because uh, this is what's coming. But this is a time for each of us to dig down even deeper and be more diligent. And if we don't see a dramatic turnaround in our numbers and soon, then we will not hesitate to take the steps that are necessary to save our city, to save our residents, And even if that means going back to some of our phase three restrictions. So, uh, again, the problem and the solution. Let's just frame this in real simple terms. The problem is COVID thrives in enclosed spaces. The solution is push people into enclosed spaces. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Reed Spaulding, practicing pathologist who grew up in rural Kentucky, now splits his time between Kentucky and Indiana, uh, oh, and, uh, of course, the, the qualifier, so he doesn't get uh, sent to a gulag. <laughs> All opinions expressed are his and not those of his employer. Dr. Spaulding, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate the invite. So um, does that make sense to you? The problem is the transmission in enclosed spaces. We know most of the transmission has occurred in homes. And so what we want to do is drive people out of public spaces and back into their homes. No, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Um, <laughs> you know, the issue with this, uh, despite all of these, you know, mandates and edicts and, you know, I don't know the specifics of, of what they're doing in Chicago versus what they're doing where I live, but you can't really stop this from happening. It's a respiratory pathogen. It, it's going to spread through the community. Now, that doesn't mean you act recklessly. That doesn't mean you don't protect people that are at highest risk of having a bad outcome from this disease. But this idea that, you know, we should just be shutting down vast loss of the entire economy, that kids shouldn't be in school. I mean, to me, that, that doesn't make any sense. No, not it, at all. It's, it's rather ironic, isn't it? I mean, what uh, you just heard Chicago Mayor Lightfoot say is essentially that she believes in variolation to achieve herd immunity because you drive people back into their homes and lock them down in their homes. Then you're going to see an increase in transmissions. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, more people get sick, as you say, it runs through the population and, and some people are going to get sick. Some people are going to die, unfortunately. 
But ultimately, you get to herd immunity that uh, in combination with a vaccine if one does come to pass. But I mean, isn't that what she's accidentally saying? Yeah, in, in a way she is. I mean, obviously what they're saying is the less people you come in contact with, the less likely you are to spread it around. But no, you're right. I mean, if you're enclosed in an enclosed space, then you're not as safe as if you're outside doing stuff, obviously. You know, you touched on the, the herd immunity thing, and I think that's an important point to consider given that, you know, you guys had me on to talk about the great uh, Barrington Declaration, which, you know, it's, it's a really positive development. Um, it's It's kind of been the first... A glimmer of hope, really, that I've seen in a while, to be completely honest. And, and what it is, it's a document that's signed by some of the leading epidemiologists in the world. You know, these are not, you know, fly-by-night folks. They're professors at, you know, Oxford, at Harvard, at Stanford, uh, some of the co-signers, you know, from Yale, big places, right? And what they've done is they've gotten together and they've basically signed a document that says the lockdown strategy that, that we had last spring and that, you know, some uh, officials are kind of starting to threaten us with, again, more and more as case numbers go up, which they will, um, that that strategy doesn't work, um, that it's actually caused more harm than good in a lot of ways in terms of people's health, in terms of their well-being, and that going forward, what we really should be doing is a more focused approach, and they call this focused protection, meaning, yeah, some places do need to be more strictly locked down, places like nursing homes where people are obviously are older and have comorbidities. But this idea of, of closing down, you know, um, not letting people go to work, not letting kids go to school, not letting people go to restaurants or concerts or what have you, that, that's, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you look at everything in the context of what is the bigger picture What are we doing to people's lives and their health, you know? When we come back with pathologist Dr. Reed Spalding, more on the logic of lockdowns and the consequences. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Dr. Reed Spaulding, a practicing pathologist in Indiana, Kentucky. We're discussing um, all things related to COVID 19 policy, particularly the lockdown policy. Before the break, uh, you were talking about the people who are sheltering and and hiding themselves, doctor. But uh, we're talking about a 99.998% survival rate for people under the age of 50. And and look, right. And this doesn't mean to diminish the fact that there are people that have gotten seriously sick. Of course not. People have died with this. I mean, sure, but but you you have to say that because when you start talking about numbers and percentages, and you start saying, well, hey, you know, most people's risk is this, they instantly say, whoa, well, what about this? Well, sure. Sure, there yes. there are. I know. I, I know, right. I mean, it, we, nobody's saying that, right? I, I, we, we, the, always the qualification. Look, we could go through the 8,000 people who will die today, tomorrow, and we could say how sad that is for every single one of those individuals and their family and friends. And, and genuinely, it is, of course. And life is about risk, about calculated risk. I, just this idea of suspension of disbelief with respect to living in a world of trade-offs 
That is the problem here. It is just so distended the way that we are approaching COVID from a, a health policy and political perspective. That's the thing that's so frustrating. And it's the others. I mean, it is the people that ridicule doctors like Kaldorf and Bhattacharya and Gupta. who don't know what the hell they're talking about. Mostly politicians. They present this false choice. You either support lockdowns or you just say, let the virus rip and whatever happens, come what may. That's not what people are saying. And that's not what the Great Barrington Declaration says. It says exactly what you said. Let's talk about how we best protect vulnerable populations that have do have much higher case fatality rate. I spoke with Martin Kaldorf. He talked about I think probably I would have teachers over the age of 60 give them the option to teach remotely, whether it's K through 12 or at the university level. So these are obviously not only intelligent, accomplished, credentialed people, but also reasonable people. And it's unreason on the other side that leads to unkindness, such as their dismissal of the consequences of lockdown policies, both in terms of the ineffectiveness and stopping the spread, as well as the unintended negative consequences of people not being too afraid to get their health screenings and their cancer treatments and their checkups, as well as the deaths from despair and so on and so forth. I mean, the, the whole conversation is so asinine, at least the one being driven by the D.C. press corps and these hyper politicized public health professionals that fall in line because they don't like Trump. I completely agree with that. I think it's a shame how politicized this issue has become and health screenings. I mean, how many women didn't get their mammograms? How many didn't go in to get their pap smears? Interestingly, too, we hear from politicians like uh, Chicago Mayor Lightfoot that uh, this uh, second wave, this resurgence is happening all over the world. Not quite. Uh, Anders uh, Tegnell, who is the state epidemiologist for Sweden, there's a very comprehensive spread of infection in large parts of the society, which we don't see in Sweden, but we are seeing in France and Spain and the Netherlands, Italy. And right. Sweden has kept their schools open, and a lot of other Western nations have opened their schools, and they've been open for months now. And one of the things that uh, it seems that we're seeing is they're not getting a resurgence because of maybe not herd immunity, but moving in that direction, particularly with a higher incident rate of infection with younger kids that are asymptomatic or, or mildly symptomatic, getting the infection, getting through it, then makes you less of a threat to, say, adults that you may come in contact with. You're exactly right. I mean, societies that have have stayed more open than ours, clearly they've had more people that are infected, that are immune. Now, now some people I've heard, you know, surprisingly say, oh, well, we don't know how long that immunity is going to last. That's true, I guess. We don't know for sure. But but if that's the case, then then there is no vaccine to be had, right? I mean, that's how you <laughs> that's how you make vaccines. You expose, you know, you modify a virus and you expose the body to that, and it the immune system makes antibodies or, the, or it's T cell immunity against it. So it's kind of a circular logic when I hear people say that. Um, I think that, yeah, you know, some of the things that they did in Sweden, I wish our approach was was more like that here in the states. I mean, they they kind of took a more um, American approach than we did, really, and <laughs> put it that way. Uh, and I, I wanted to get to your particular practice since you're in Kentucky and Indiana. Indiana is, right. um, you know, basically uh, fully open. Uh, Kentucky, right. I guess, is uh, still in process of that. So what, what has been your experience in, in those two states as a practitioner? Well, I mean, so my experience, keep in mind, I'm a pathologist, so right. I don't actually see, yeah, I don't see patients, you know, in the clinic setting, I don't prescribe medicine for COVID. That's that's not what I do. Um, but what I have seen is 
what I touched on earlier that, you know, there have been instances where I know for a fact I'm looking at somebody's biopsy about seven or eight months too late, mm-hmm. you know. Um, they had a lump back in January and February. They couldn't come to the hospital because of COVID. And again, it's not the hospital's fault. It's not the patient's fault. This is, we didn't really know what was going on back in March, right? But for whatever reason, their care got delayed. And so now they're coming and now I'm saying, oh, well, it's actually cancer. I mean, I've I've had that happen to two or three patients. That's just my anecdotal experience. And, you know, there've been studies that, that are Back in um, back in May or June, I wrote a, a paper about this. I'd have to <clears throat> look up the exact numbers, but tens of thousands of people this year will will die from cancer just because this has interfered with their either their care or their diagnosis up front. Um, and that's and that's not necess- and, and by the way, that's I just want to make this point. That's not necessarily just because they were afraid, so they bear some culpability. That's because they couldn't get in to get the screening yeah. because the resources were repurposed for you know to, to, right. to be solely dedicated to COVID. Of course, yeah, no, I mean it's not. You know, I think that's. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That it kind of hits on. I feel like uh, it's not really an intentionality thing. I mean, you're right. It, you know, they were scared, some of them, but they literally just couldn't get into the hospital in the first place. But, but, but what you do have in this situation is politicians stigmatizing disease um, in a way that, that really isn't helpful. You know, it's like, well, if you're, not, if you're not wearing your mask and you're not social distancing, then obviously you don't care about your fellow man, right? I mean, they almost kind of give us this, <laughs> um, this sanctimonious um, Yes. take on it and, and that, that's not helpful you know that doesn't that doesn't make people feel good you know that doesn't that doesn't help the problem he is yeah no it's uh, well good observations dr reed spaulding he's a practicing pathologist who grew up in rural kentucky now splits his time between kentucky and indiana uh, joining us to talk about um, lockdown policy and other related public health policy again his opinions are his and not those of his employer dr spaulding thanks so much for joining us appreciate it Thank you so much for inviting me. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to close out uh, the show. Picking up on uh, our conversation earlier in the hour with Young Voices, Amy Lutz, about conservatives not giving up on academia. This uh, latest data brought to us from uh, Mark Perry over at the Carpe Diem blog, American Enterprise Institute. He uh, keeps us updated on this at least annually. And it's good because, of course, what's the zeitgeist when it comes to gender politics and concern about representation on a college campus, as in society in general, women and minorities being underrepresented? Well, here, male, female, doctoral degrees by field and gender for the 2018-2019 school year, health and medical sciences. 244 women to every 100 men. Education, more than twice, 216 to every 100 men. Public administration, government, 278 to every 100 men. Social and behavioral sciences, 156 to every 100 men. Uh, In total, it's 112 doctoral degrees in all of these disciplines achieved by women versus men. 
I don't particularly have a problem. I've said before, this should be merit-based, but of course we know that's not the case, and we know that the propaganda surrounding gender distribution in academic disciplines is all about getting more women into STEM because there's some sort of crisis in higher education. Perhaps there is not. Master's degrees by field and gender, the disparities where women dominate just grow at the master's degree level. Arts and humanities, biological ag studies, education, health and medical sciences, public administration, social and behavioral sciences, public administration, three and a half to one, health and medical sciences, four to one women, education, more than three to one women. Again, it's business narrowly where men outnumber women in terms of MBAs and then engineering where men get master's degrees in engineering by three to one rate over women, math and computer sciences, two to one, physical and earth sciences, about five to every four men to women. Uh, Mark Perry concludes, if there's any attention about gender differences in graduate schools, it will likely focus on the fact that women are minority in four of the 11 fields of graduate study, including engineering and computer science. That's considered a national crisis, as I said. But don't expect any concern about the fact that men have increasingly become the second sex in higher education. The concern about gender imbalances will remain extremely selective and will only focus on cases when women, not men, are underrepresented and in the minority. This is not to to do what the left seeks to do all the time, which is to have representation perfectly uh, reflective of the distribution of the representative party in the larger electorate or the larger society, that larger population. That's not the point. The point is just to say how we talk about these things. And uh, to the extent you want to examine disparities, are those disparities driven by interest level and aptitude and the combination of the two? Or is there something else afoot? And we can do that in STEM uh, vis-a-vis women. And we can do that in all of these other fields vis-a-vis men, too, to make sure that uh, colleges and including their grad schools are pursuing and accepting students based on merit rather than based on checking identitarian boxes. Uh, And as Mark Perry is always good at doing, including with Title IX cases, you know, that conversation runs in both directions, not just one. Thanks for joining us in another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again for Debate Eve tomorrow night. This is The Dan Prof Show.